Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you tonight. There are a lot of places you could be this evening. You've chosen to be here, and I'm grateful for it. You hopefully will be blessed by not only the fellowship of one another, but the challenges of life that we will meet with the help of God. I'm grateful for many things. I'm thankful to be a part of this congregation from time to time, and I'm grateful for the friendship of Paul and Glenn and the work that they do here, and the elders and the congregation and the oversight that's done is uh, outstanding. We're, we're thankful for you being in our community and the work that is being done by the West Huntsville congregation. I'm impressed with your young people, always, and uh, you've got a great group of, of youth and I know that they are a benefit to the, the families that are here and also to the congregation. This is a great blessing and is something not found in all churches. And I am always impressed with the quality of song leading that is done by your young people. Uh, I don't, have not addressed it always, but our, the young men who have led singing uh, here um, are truly outstanding. And uh, I preach in a number of places, sometimes smaller groups and sometimes larger, but um, the, the singing here is always um, truly wonderful. Many years ago, and when I say that, I, I mean it, like 30 years ago, I was preaching at uh, Memorial Parkway on a Sunday night, and I preached the sermon that I had planned. And uh, it definitely wasn't short. I don't preach many short sermons. But it wasn't, we didn't go into overtime either, but it, it kind of pushed on the, uh, right at the boundaries. After services, one of the guys came up and met me, one of the elder gentlemen. He met me at the door and he said, you've got nerve. He said, I cannot believe that you preached so long tonight with the game on. Well, it was the seventh game of the World Series that evening. And uh, my response was, what game? He just turned around and walked off in a huff. I wasn't being tacky. I didn't know the game was on. I'm not a fan of the, uh, the baseball. Um, and so I just didn't know. Some of you are. I'm aware that there's a game being played tonight. Actually, a couple of them. My wife informed me that LSU and Alabama were still even at zero when I was driving over. I don't know if anyone will update as we go on or not. I want to begin tonight by reading from Matthew chapter 18. We're going to take apart, if that's the right term, a parable that is not unknown to you, but probably not one of the most common parables that you read either. It's very interesting. 
Matthew chapter 18, start with me in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who, excuse me, who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. I wish it were the case that every time Jesus told a parable, he explained it, as the explanation here is at the end. The concept of a parable, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which means literally to lay alongside of, with the idea that something is laid there for perspective or measuring or so you can make a comparison of it. So the parable is designed to give you an illustration that you can make a comparison to. And here the illustration is about a king who has a servant who owes him a phenomenal amount of money. Depending on the exchange rate and, and how certain weights are balanced out, and this is, this is done with money, it is an enormous debt. It is many, many millions of dollars that is forgiven by this man. Arguably, forgiveness is one of the most important concepts in our understanding of our relationship with God. Without forgiveness, where would we be? 
What is forgiveness? Sometimes it's more difficult to define a word than we might think. We understand it. We use it. But what is forgiveness? To remove or absolve guilt, sin, error, debt, or wrongdoing. That's a textbook definition. To remove or absolve, to, to let go of something that is owed, something that is wrong, something that is laid in a negative way to our account. Unspoken here is the concept of accountability. That there is a responsibility of our actions and how we live uh, that, that someone is, dare we use the phrase, keeping score. That there is an account of our lives. And of course, we know from numerous scriptures that such an account is being done. In fact, many of the statements regarding judgment, as Solomon looked to the conclusion of the matter in Ecclesiastes, he said, here's the, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments because all of these things will be brought into judgment. Accountability means that the actions that we undertake, the things that we do, have consequences. And there are consequences um, in, le- in at least three directions. There are consequences with regard to God. There are consequences with regard to other people in our lives. And there are consequences in regard to ourselves. So what we do matters. And you recognize that, that a number of things happen that uh, in life that, that forgiveness requires. All right, so having defined forgiveness, let's, let's illustrate it a little bit. And rather than use our time to teach new stories, I want to use stories that you're familiar with so that you can readily put them into place. The first is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you'll recognize immediately the discussion, and we're only going to read a a few of the verses here um, for time's sake. We're not going to get all of the story, but I'll backdrop it just a little bit. King David has been involved with a woman that's not his wife, Bathsheba. By him, she became with child. When that information came out in an attempt to try to cover up his own guilt, her husband, who was away at war, David brings back and attempts to bring him and send him into his wife so that David's sin with that woman will be covered up but it doesn't work out. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, has so much character that he will not go in, he says, and visit his wife while his fellow Israelites are in the field doing battle. David eventually sends Uriah back to battle carrying his own death certificate. He informs the leader of the army of Israel to put this man in the hottest place of the battle and then pull back away from him to allow him to be killed. Treachery. This is the king. The man who he has assassinated, Uriah, 
will be listed as one of the mighty men in David's special cohort of men who serve him faithfully. Uriah has been one of his strong men. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. Nathan says to David, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And there are the consequences that have been spelled out by Nathan in regard to David's actions. The second example I'd like for us to look at, and I would say regarding this, that that God forgave David. And we see it happening. The second one is from the book of Acts, chapter 15. And I want to start reading in verse 36. This would be a wonderful opportunity for a discussion class. We don't have the opportunity here to do it, but if time allowed, perhaps you can debate this at some future point, as I'm sure many of you have. Acts 15.36, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. The separation of Paul and Barnabas is huge. Barnabas is responsible for bringing Saul into the church in Jerusalem when the church would have nothing to do with him. Saul had been converted in Damascus and had been run out of that town because of the Jews wanting to take his life. He had come to Jerusalem and wanted to take refuge among the Christians there, but he had been persecuting the Christians there. Is it any wonder they were not ready to take him in, perhaps believing that he was not truly a convert, but at any rate, if it hadn't been for Barnabas, Paul's relationship with the church in Jerusalem would have been very different. Barnabas speaks up for him and brings him in, connects him to the church. When the Jews in Jerusalem go after Saul, he escapes and goes back to his home in Tarsus. Some time later, Barnabas will be sent on a mission by the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And after he finishes the mission he's got, he will go on and find Saul of Tarsus and will carry him to the city of Antioch, where the Christians first were named by that name. 
And it's there in Acts chapter 13 where the Holy Spirit will call upon the church and say, separate to me Saul and Barnabas. I have a mission for them. And the beginning of the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas there begin. And toward the middle of that chapter, Saul's name will be turned to, and he was called Paul. And from then on, he is never called Saul again in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas travel, and they're going to do many things together. It's that Paul and that Barnabas. They have a tremendous bond. But they've taken with them John Mark on that missionary journey, and John Mark had left. And now Paul wants to go back and cover some of that territory, and Barnabas wants to give John Mark an opportunity to go again. And Paul does not. A lot of questions could come up here. Who is right and who is wrong? Is one of these persons sinning in what they did? I'm not suggesting that they were. I'm just saying that there's some interesting questions that we could answer. I do think if I asked you this question, you would be able to answer it without too much trouble. Which one of these men demonstrated greater forgiveness for John Mark? Now that question I think you can answer. The third illustration is one that you you know so well. It's found in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a young man who leaves his family, goes off into another country, and wastes his living riotously in immoral living. At some point, he comes to himself, recognizes the sin that he has committed, and wants to go home. Does go home. Pick up and read with me in Luke chapter 15. Let's start reading um, in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Pause there for a moment. Would any of us debate what this young man has said? Is he worthy to be called the son of the father, seeing what he did? He demanded to have the inheritance that would not be appropriately his until his father was dead. In essence, what this young man said to his father was, I wish you were dead. And when you do die, I will be subject to a certain amount of of material wealth. I want it now. But now he's returned home. What would our response be? Here's the story that Jesus continues to tell. But the father said to his servants, verse 22, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now, the word forgiveness is not found in there, but the concept is the father forgave the son. Let's go back to our illustration that we started with, our parable. 
from Matthew. When Matthew 18 begins to unfold and shows us the the story that Jesus wants to use as the example, there are a number of statements that are made that are helpful for us. First of all, the servant owes such such an enormous debt, 10,000 talents. If you owed a billion dollars to someone, how do you settle that? The debt was impossible to be paid. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. It was an impossible debt to be paid. But the king forgave it. I think there's an important reason why there's such a concrete description here made. We can understand debt. We can look at a balance sheet and we can see you owe this amount of money. You have this amount of income. How long would it take you to pay off a debt of that size? And, you know, it, in this case, it would, it, we don't have the numbers of what the income of this man was, but he was unable. And seeing the, the gargantuan size of it, to forgive that debt would be unimaginable. Imagine owing, let's say, a billion dollars to a bank. Impossible, I know. But if you went in, rather than declaring bankruptcy and going to court and liquidating everything, what if you went into the bank and you said to the president of the bank, I'm not going to be able to pay this debt. Can you give me some time to pay it off? And imagine then the banker saying, tell you what, you're a friend of mine. We've been friends for a long time. I'm going to write your balance as zero. Consider your debt paid. You don't have to liquidate your assets. You don't have to liquidate your house. You don't have to give up everything you own. I'm just going to, I'm going to absolve the debt. That's unimaginable. That's exactly right. That's the whole point that Jesus is trying to make. This man was treated in such a way that is beyond imagination. All right, now he has a man who he has loaned money to, and a denarii would have been the approximate typical wage of a day, a single denarii. So this man owes something like the equivalent of a, you know, close to a year's salary. Well, that's not insignificant. We don't have the kind of working wages uh, that uh, some countries do where there's a set amount of money. Uh, Those involved in this room may uh, differ by many, many thousands of dollars in what you typically make in a year. But imagine that you owe someone a year's salary. Whatever your year's salary represents is not insignificant. And you owe it. And you use exactly the same words as the man who had been forgiven this huge debt. He didn't ask for, to be removed from the debt. He was not trying to get out of the debt. He simply said, give me time and I will pay you everything. But instead of responding generously as the king did and erasing the debt, now this servant who was forgiven so much takes his fellow man by the throat. Have you ever taken anybody by the throat? Took him by the throat and demanded that he pay 
everything. And when he couldn't, he put him in prison, the debtor's prison, where you stay until the debt is paid off. There's a second concept. First of all, the, the, the debt of this first man is unpayable. Second, because it's unpayable, there is a, a weakness there. The one in debt is unable to bring about the fix. Now, that's the case in forgiveness. Anytime we're talking about forgiveness, the person who needs forgiveness is not in a position to bring it about. Rather, they must rely on the the compassion or the well-meaning of someone else. Third, observation from our text. Forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is possible. When people do you wrong, it's possible to forgive them. When people have an obligation, it's possible for that obligation to be set aside. When people have failed in some regard, it's possible for things to be done so that it can be taken care of. If not, there will be no hope for any of us. So it is important that we understand that forgiveness is possible. He forgave him the debt. When Jesus told his apostles, his disciples, Luke 24, verse 47, that repentance... For the remission of sins should be preached in all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What was the purpose of the, of the preaching of the repentance and remission of sins? Because forgiveness is possible and because God wants to forgive us and because the concept of, of, of forgiveness is such an important idea and it, it resonates so deeply in our, in our need. And when we understand the nature of our debt, our, our guilt, our obligation, our sin, it weighs heavy on us. A number of years ago, I was at a restaurant, not too far away from where we are sitting right now, or where you are, I'm standing. I was eating supper with a, a couple my wife and his wife were on the other side of the table, a fairly large table, but not, not enormous. And we were sitting, he, he and I were sitting on the other side, and my wife and his wife were having their conversation, and me and him were having ours. And he said, let me ask you something. I said, okay. He said, I need to ask you an honest question. Okay. He said, will God really forgive us of the things that we have done? Well, of course, I could have given an immediate flippant answer. Well, of course he will. But I could tell that his his conscience was troubled. He was really struggling with something. He didn't look me in the eye. He was looking at the table, and he said... We did some terrible things in the war. He said, I saw terrible things. I did terrible things. By this time, he had tears silently running down both cheeks. And he said, I I don't know what I can do about it. 
we had a conversation right there in the restaurant about forgiveness. About God's forgiveness of us. And when you sit and think for a moment, when the weight of the mistakes of our past really press down upon our shoulders, when we really weigh out with our conscience what it means to have done wrong, and there's no way to make it right, that's a hard place to be. I spoke with another man, different setting, some years later. And his life had been a mess in many ways. And he said, how do I make this right? Well, the things that he had been a part of, there's no way to make right. How was David supposed to make things right with regarding Bathsheba and Uriah after taking a man's wife and having, her husband, having the husband killed? How do you fix that? Uh, I'm not saying there's, there's no strings that can be untied or unknotted, but you, there's no fix for that. And I said, you have to repent, which means stop, get out, go the other way. You have to seek God's forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. He said, and then what? I said, what do you mean, then what? He said, that's it? I just ask God to forgive me and that's it? There's nothing I can do? And I said, what could you do? He says, I don't know, but it, it's, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. You remember the story in 2 Kings where, where Naaman goes over to meet with Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come out of the door. He just sends him to the Jordan River to be washed, dipped seven times to have his leprosy taken away. And Naaman is, is all upset about it. He's got this disease. He's found out about it. He's gone through a lot of effort. He's really an important man. He goes over. He sees the king of Israel. He goes down to see this prophet. And he's expecting a really big deal, a show, to put on some sort of spectacular thing. And Elisha says, go dip yourself seven times in the River Jordan. You'll be clean. Elisha, I mean, uh, Naaman turns away in a huff. He's angry. He goes away mad. And it's only the intervention of his servants who come to him and say, my father, if, if the prophet had said to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more? Some simple request like this. And he went to the Jordan River and he dipped himself seven times and he came up and it says his flesh was made whole again like a, depend on your translation, the Hebrew word is there a na'ar. It doesn't mean an infant, it means a young man. David is described as a na'ar when he was going out to meet Goliath. What can you do to make up for the wrongs that you've done in your life? And not all of you in this room will, will look back at your past and say, I feel like I have great wrongs. In fact, some will say, well, I don't really have anything in my past that's a, a big problem for me. If that's the case, there will be a, 
limit to your understanding of the concept of forgiveness because you haven't been in the spot where you really needed forgiveness. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you won't appreciate it the same way if you have not really had something there that needed to be forgiven. Fourth observation from our parable. Forgiveness is not only possible, it is also commanded. It is commanded and expected of us toward one another. Now, perhaps when you saw the title of our lesson tonight and you saw Growing in Forgiveness... I don't know what went through your mind. Maybe nothing. Maybe you didn't give it a single thought. But you may have thought to yourself, well, my forgiveness with God, how do, why do I need to grow in my relationship of forgiveness with God? And I'm not going to address that particular side of this as much. I want to focus on the other side. You need to grow in your forgiveness others. That's where the growth needs to happen. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, the last part of that verse, Paul says, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Now there's a, there's a connection to what we do toward others and how God acts toward us. Matthew chapter 6, start reading with me in verse 9. Matthew 6, 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we come to verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now that's an interesting part of that prayer because Jesus says our appropriate prayer to God, he's teaching the the people on the Sermon on the Mount, our appropriate prayer to God is for God to forgive us conditionally upon our forgiveness of others. As we forgive others, you forgive us. What if we don't forgive others? And that's where our parable comes home. When that man who had been forgiven so much comes to his fellow debtor, takes him by the throat and refuses to forgive him a much smaller thing and throws him into prison. And then the king, the king who has forgiven the debt of this man who had this great debt, and don't miss this part, he reinstates the debt. What? Go back and read it. The debt had been forgiven. Well, if you can strike it with a pen, you can put it back in. 
wait, what what are you saying? Are are you saying that, that forgiveness is not permanent? I'm saying that you need to read this parable. What was Jesus teaching? Verse 32, Matthew 18. His master, after he had called him, said to him, Your wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Had the debt been forgiven? Yes, it had. Was it done by the king? Yes, it was. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? Yes, you should. The condition here. As I treated you, you should have treated him or them as the case may be. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Now, wait a minute. What, what, was, what debt did this man have if the king had, had obliterated the debt, forgiven the debt? The king says, you're not out from under this yet. I did forgive you, but because of the way you've treated this man, I'll now hold you responsible for that. And if that was all we had, if, if, if it ended right there, we'd still be, there'd be a lot of debate that goes on. We'd say, well, what? wait a minute, there's no way you, you've come up with the right explanation for this. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus meant by this. Forgiveness is one way. It's a done deal. Okay? Read the next verse. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now, I don't know how to take that, that verse and, and unwind that. That's holding us responsible for how we treat others. And it's directly responsible for how God will treat us. So, for a minute or two, time that we have left and we don't have much, let's talk about growing. You may say, I'm not there. There are people who I hold accountable and and I'm I'm not forgiving them and I haven't forgiven them and, and you're scaring me here. Growing in forgiveness. How do you grow in forgiveness? Well, how do you grow in anything? Almost all of human endeavor that is, is uh, helpful, is intentional, um, comes by the same keys. If you want to uh, go out and, and get a degree, if you want to find a new job, if you want to build a fence around your yard, if you want to lose weight, if you want to whatever, there are some things that are going to be necessary in order for those to be accomplished. They just are. Number one, you're going to have to desire it. You've got to want it. 
Nothing happens by accident. Well, a few things happen by accident, but, but most things that are helpful and none that are intentional don't come because we want them. So that has to be the beginning place. We desire it to take place. Do you want to forgive others better? Now, you've got to answer that question. I have done marriage counseling for a number of years. And uh, with lots of couples, both inside the church and out. And one of the questions that I ask every single couple that comes to me in the part of the intake process and first getting to know them, and, and often they are people I don't know, and we'll have an opportunity to discuss some of the issues regarding them. But I ask them this question. Do you want your marriage to continue? And you might be thinking, well, why do you ask them that question? Of course they want their marriage to continue or they wouldn't be there. Do you want it to get better? Do you want this to be fixed? Do you want to stay married? Of course they do or they wouldn't be there. I ask that specifically every time and I wait for an answer from both of them. You know why? Because if both of them agree that they want to save the marriage, then almost always the marriage can be saved. I would say always, but someone would bring me an example of of, of something. So I'll say almost. But no, I believe that every marriage can be saved. If you were involved enough with each other, you got married in the first place. Even if you have these difficulties, if both people want it to be able to be put together, then it can. What's interesting, push to that question, is to have one or the other partner say, You know, I really never thought about that before. No, I don't. I've had some walk out the door. I've had some not show up for the next meeting. I've had some to say, I need time to think about that. I'm not sure. Do you want to forgive better? And if you don't, then (laughs) we're pretty much done. But if you do, then we'll go to the next step. All right, so let's assume, do you desire it? Yes. Number two, plant it. What? What? Plant it. Just like a little tree, just like a little bush. Plant it. Start doing it. My neighbor, backside, has an oak tree in their yard. It's beautiful. It, the foliage wouldn't fit on this stage. It came from the man's home place where he grew up in Indiana. His mom and dad had a beautiful tree in their backyard. And this guy grew up there and he said, I love that tree. And one day I brought home several acorns from that tree and he planted them in a bucket. And he he said they grew in a bucket for a while. He kept them just at his house for a while. Eventually they got into a bucket, they got planted. And then they grew in the bucket for a while. And finally he planted one in the backyard. And now it is a gorgeous, stunning tree. I've got pictures of it on my phone. Just the most stunning orange and yellow foliage. I wish I had it in in my yard. I'm jealous of their tree. They didn't plant it like that. It was only an acorn when it was planted, and it grew into a magnificent tree. Jesus is on the cross. The Jews are clamoring for his death. They want the most horrible things to happen to Jesus. And he responds from the cross in the middle of being crucified and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. 
could you do that? He, he was great in forgiveness. It didn't start out like that. Now, I'm not putting Jesus in the growing category like us, but that requires a tremendous amount of perspective and compassion. And here's Stephen. End of Acts chapter 7, Sanhedrin's cast him out. They're ready to stone him to death, or in the process of stoning him to death. He's not dead yet, but the, he's probably been injured bad enough that he's dying. And he calls on the Lord and he says, don't charge them with this sin. How do you do that? One of our statements from our discussions last night, our wisdom, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife. What was the last part of that? But love covers all sins. If you hate someone, you will not be able to forgive them. But if you can put aside the hatred and turn it into love, then you can. And if you missed this part in our story in Matthew chapter 18, verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Desire it, nurture it. You begin small and or plant it. You begin small with a little piece and it starts. And then number three, nurture it. Desire it, plant it, nurture it. What does it mean to nurture something? Well, that means that, means that you, you do the things that, are, that help it grow. You have your Bible with you tonight? How many? Let's see them. Lots. Why? Why? Because we're, we're Bible study. I, yeah, why? Well, because I want to know what the Bible says. I want to look at it. I want to understand it. I want to grow. Exactly right. You're nurturing your knowledge. You're nurturing your faith. You're nurturing your, you're, you're growing up your ability to be, to be right with God. How many of you pray? We all do. Why? Well, because that's our, that's our approach to God. Jesus prayed. Jesus taught us to pray. Pray without ceasing, Paul said. We, we're expected to pray. Exactly right. We, we pray because we, we, we want to be right with God and we want to bring ourselves closer to God and we understand that's how we, that's how we make that work. How many of you pray for God to forgive you? All our hands go back up. Why do you pray for God to forgive you? Because I want to be forgiven. I want to stand in a relationship with God where my sins are not held accountable to me. And I recognize that I I need to be right with God. And I want God to remove these from my, my obligation, my debt. Right. How many of you pray for God to help you do better at forgiving others? Maybe not so many hands on that one. Why? 
Because that means we have to give up our hatred. We have to give up our record keeping. We have to, we have to let go of some things. And Jesus is on the cross. He's a good forgiver. And Father, forgive them. Stephen, he's a good forgiver. Lord, don't lay this tend to their charge. But what are we like? There's a, uh, there's a wonderful but frightening passage in Jeremiah chapter 18. Write it down for your reading later. Jeremiah chapter 18, start reading it about verse 19 and go to the end of the chapter. Jeremiah is pouring out his anger and his wrath to God. And he says, the children of Israel, they're coming against me and I have, I have done good to them, but now they want to harm me. God, pour out your wrath on them. Obliterate them. Destroy them. Remove them from your sight. Take away their children. Take away their families. Deal with them when you're angry. Do not remove their guilt. Oh, that doesn't sound very good, does it? No. David on his deathbed. First Kings. He knows he's dying. He's got Solomon there and he says, okay, you know, you're going to become king and, and do what's good and these, you know, that's, that's great and here you're going to be. And, and then he says, you know, <clears throat> I'm about to die. So uh, you remember Joab and how Joab did some things against me and hurt me and, and hurt others? He said, you're a smart man. Don't let Joab die a natural death. Bring his head down with blood. Whoa. A little farther down. Comes to another guy. Now you, you remember Shimmy when I was when I was cast out of Jerusalem and I had to run away and and um he came out to curse me and I told him I wouldn't kill him. But now he's still alive. You take care of him. Here we have David at the end of his life seeking revenge. He won't be there to see it. He's not going to do it with his own hands. But he wants, he wants vengeance paid for. Paul's words in Romans chapter 12. Don't repay evil with evil. Repay evil with good. Don't try to solve things for yourself. But remember, the Lord said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Leave that to God. Just... Leave that alone. Can I take the time to read one more short story? Genesis chapter 50. We'll hurry. Jacob is dying and has died. Joseph is in Egypt. His brothers are there. And... While the father was alive, everything was great. But now Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead. They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us, will actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Here's the brothers, and now that the father's dead, they're afraid. And they're saying, Joseph's going to get his revenge on us, and we're in trouble. He's powerful. We've seen it. Joseph's sadness is the fact that 
even the brothers would think that he's going to do that. His response is just marvelous. Verse 19, first he says, don't be afraid. Why not? He says, am I in the place of God? What? Am I in the place of God? Do I have the right to judge and bring about vengeance? No. That's God's place, not ours. Now, did they do wrong to Joseph? Yes, they did. Did Joseph deserve to punish them? Sure, he did in some sense, but he didn't. And why didn't he? Because he had this perspective of his own mind. He said, that's not my place. It's not my place to do this to you. I have the power. I have the ability, but it's not my place. That's God's place. The second one, I'd love to pursue that more, but... I don't want you to be totally angry with me for taking you into overtime. He says, You meant this to me for evil, but God meant it for good and to the saving of many lives as it is this day. Now, I'm not going to tell you that everything that happens in your life is going to turn out good. What I will say, and I believe with all of my heart, is that even the most horrible things that happen to us, God has the power to cause good things to come from it. I don't mean they'll be good, and I don't mean they'll be enjoyable, but there were some things that will come because you have been put in this place, and you now are going along this path, and some good things will come from your life and experiences that you might not have had had you not had those bad experiences. Fanny J. Crosby, who has written some of the most wonderful and loved songs in our songbook, said the greatest gift God gave her in life was blindness. Why do we need to grow in forgiveness? I'll just end with the words of Jesus, verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his own heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. God longs to forgive you. God longs for you to forgive others. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.